Jesus' final week, on one hand, was somber, but I think on the other hand, for Jesus, it was exciting. And this really had never occurred to me until this morning as I was thinking and praying. It was somber because Jesus knew what he was facing. He had been telling the disciples all along that he had to go to Jerusalem, he had to be arrested, he had to be beaten, and he had to die. He knew what was coming. But what occurred to me this morning is, is the scripture in Hebrews where it says it was for the joy that was set before him that he was able to endure the cross. What Jesus also knew was not that he was just going to have to endure being arrested, beaten, and crucified. Is that by the end of the week, he would be restored to the Father. And that was what enabled him to go through it. And, and it occurred to me that that is kind of a picture of what prayer, a week of fast, a prayer with fasting is. It's not that we like to give up food. I mean, does anybody really get excited about not eating what you want to eat? If you do, we need to put you in a padded room probably. It, that's not the point. But if you know that as you surrender and listen, obey, as you obey this, our memory scripture, you deny yourself, you take up your cross by obeying Jesus' discipline of fasting, of, of giving up food, that you will experience the presence of God. That's what drives you. That's what motivates you. And so Jesus' final week was the focus of why he had come. If we go back and, and open your Bible to John chapter 1, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, if we go back to the very beginning, after Jesus has, um, has, has grown up to be a man, we find that it was the f- it, it being the Lamb of God as the, uh, as the sacrifice for our sins was the ultimate target. It had been the focus actually since the Garden of Eden. When Jesus, uh, when God said um, to Adam and Eve and the serpent that, yeah, you're going to, you know, you're going to harm um, the the, the woman's son, but ultimately one of her descendants will crush your head. And so it, it, this had been the focus all, all the way. And in the beginning, when John was having his public ministry, in John chapter 1, beginning with verse 29, John chapter 1, verse 29 says, He, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one of whom I said, I, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was, was before me. And then the following day, and jump down to verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now of all the terms that, that, John, that the Holy Spirit could have motivated John the baptizer to speak about Jesus, it was Lamb of God. Two days in a row, as his title and purpose to two different groups of people, or, or at least there were different people in the crowd, which means it's important. And so Jesus' final week reveals to us how he is uh, revealing himself, challenging us to see him as he really is, inviting us to experience who he is as the Lamb of God. And so that last week, 
is not an accident. It's not, Jesus was not a victim in any way. And so as he comes riding into Jerusalem, it's not as, he's not worried about anybody doing anything to him. So flip ahead into John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Because everything God does is intentional, deliberate, leading to his purposes with the foundation of his love for us a love beyond comprehension, he invites us to experience his love. And this, and because he has deliberately done everything he needs to, to restore us and reconcile us to relationship as the Lamb of God. And so John chapter 10, verse 17 says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So as, G G as Jesus begins this last week, it's not, he doesn't have to wonder what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen because the Father's in charge. The Jewish leaders aren't in charge. Pilate's not in charge. The crowds are not in charge. Everything that happens to him is a part of God's design and plan. So I want to look at three incidents or three moments of that final week of Jesus. The first one is the ride, where Jesus presents himself. The ride, known as the triumphal entry. It was and it wasn't. For those who were there that day, they, their agenda was that here's this Jesus. He's going to be our king. He's done miracles. He's shown himself to be more powerful than demons. And now he's going to deliver us. He's going from the, the enslavement of Rome and he's going to give us what we want. But it was in the way that Jesus arrived and the message that he was delivering that they didn't catch. You see, Jesus goes to great lengths to present himself as a king of peace great lengths to present himself as a king of peace. They were, the crowds and even the disciples were viewing this incident through, uh, with an upside down perspective. They were seeing what they wanted to see. They wanted the Messiah to make their life easier. They wanted the Messiah to, to do what they had on their agenda, what they think will make them happy. Now, we don't do that when we come to God, do we? Absolutely, we do. Not even realizing it. That's why so often I will say we are way more upside down than we realize because we come with God to God so often with an agenda instead of saying, uh, God, I surrender. I want to be on your agenda. And so they saw, and we will see what we want to see if, the, if we're not careful to let the Holy Spirit guide us to seeing the truth. So go a couple more pages in the book of John, the gospel of John chapter 12, and begin with verse 12. John chapter 12, beginning with verse 12. So says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Save us now, which was the right cry. 
Save us now, but not the kind of salvation that they had in mind. The way that Jesus rode into town, if they had paid attention, was offering, he was offering to conquer something other than the Romans. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, was fighting a cosmic battle, not an earthly battle, a much more important battle. The problem was that the crowds wanted Jesus to solve their earthly problems instead of the spiritual problems. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, after he died and was resurrected, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Here Jesus is deliberately, intentionally fulfilling a prophetic prediction as he rode into town as the Lamb of God. Conquering heroes ride in on stallions. Those who are proclaiming to be kings of peace ride in on donkeys. And Jesus even chose not just a donkey, but the colt of a donkey who had never been ridden. It was because Jesus, it wasn't because that was all he could find. It was because he was deliberately sending a message. And so oftentimes when we pray for God to do things, if we back off of our agenda and say, God, what is it you want to do? He'll show us that he wants to come in a different way into our lives. He wants to work in a different way. And so Jesus proclaims that he's the king of peace. But nobody understood. It says the disciples didn't understand these things. I I can imagine that the disciples along with the crowds may have been excited. Finally. I mean, they've been with him for two and a half, three years. Finally, Jesus is going to do the Messiah thing. He's going to deliver us. He's going to be the king like David was all over again. But they didn't understand. It wasn't that Jesus didn't try to help them understand. Over and over, he tried to tell them he had to die, but they couldn't get it because only through the power of the Holy Spirit could they comprehend. Jesus goes to great lengths also to force a choice. And he does that with every person. But the Bible tells us that it's it's not God's will that any should perish, but he he, and so he pursues them, but it's a choice. He's forcing them to make a choice. Are you going to follow me as the Lamb of God? And he's throwing down the gauntlet to the religious leaders who would ultimately kill him. I've got a couple of scriptures here. You can look them up later if you like, but they'll be on the screen. Matthew chapter 21, verses 15 to 16 says, When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were mad. They were upset. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Those, the, the religious leaders were saying, what they're saying is improper. That's blasphemy because only God should receive that kind of praise. And Jesus goes, yep. And if they don't say it, all of creation would say it. Mark chapter 11, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. 
As Jesus rides in on that Palm Sunday, he's forcing a choice in the crowds. Excuse me. But he's also throwing down the gauntlet, says it's time. He's throwing down the gauntlet, not just to the religious leaders, but to to the rebellious forces of Satan as well. It's time. It's time for me to fulfill my purpose as the Lamb of God. It's time for me to die as the Lamb of God so that sins can be forgiven and Satan can be defeated and there can be no longer fear of sin and death. Victory is coming. I don't know that anyone that day understood, but they did later. You see, Jesus still rides into our lives offering his agenda. Because so oftentimes what we cry out for that we want is not what we really need. And we have to surrender that. There were some in the crowds that day who would surrender their agenda and they would follow. There were some even in the Sanhedrin couple who would follow. But the vast majority, when Jesus didn't deliver what they thought they should have, turned on him. And I don't know that anybody knows for sure, but there may have been some in the crowd just a few days later who had been crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who then turned around and cried, crucify, crucify. Because Jesus didn't give them what they wanted. So I put a place in your outline with the question, what will you do? Because Jesus, Jesus will force, as you go through life, over and over, you'll, you'll hit places in your life where he will force a decision. Are you willing to give this to me? Are you willing to surrender this to me? Are you willing to follow my agenda? Are you willing to, to love a person that has hurt you deeply? Are you willing to serve somebody else when you want to be served? Are you willing to give up of your time, talents, and And are you willing to fast and pray? Are you willing to seek me with all of your heart? You see, it's not a one-time choice to let Jesus be king. It's a daily choice. We go back to our scripture. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So what will you do? The second moment is the meal. Later in the week, and, and actually between Palm Sunday and the meal, there's, there's a lot of interaction. There's a fulfillment of prophecies. There's, um, there's, there's uh, Jesus being um, uh, challenged by the religious leaders. And, and there's just a whole lot that happens during that week. In my studies, I ran across um, some scholars who say that um, it, was on, it, would, it would be about Palm Sunday when those who were preparing to um, celebrate Passover would choose the lamb that they would use for Passover feast. And, and they would inspect it. You know, there would have to be an inspection and approval by the, the priest to make sure that the, it was unblemished. And, and, and um, one, one author I was reading correlated this that Jesus had gone through all the time of inspection. And now on Palm Sunday, he's presenting himself as the perfect lamb of God. 
And the inspection that he went through is all of these questions by the Sanhedrin, trying to trick him, trying to fool him, trying, challenging him, and several times even trying to kill him. And, and there was no way that God was going to let that happen. And now the time has come. Mark chapter 12, verse 34 says, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions because he had proven himself to be the Lamb of God. At the meal, Jesus revealed his love and his kingdom. His love and his kingdom. So Jesus gathers his 12 uh, closest disciples, those he specifically called some years before, and he gathered them for a meal. And at the beginning of the, and he, as he gathers them in at the beginning of the meal, what's, what's the first thing he does? He washes their feet. Jesus reveals himself and his love and his kingdom. What he's showing them is if it, what he had said earlier, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you have to be the servant of all. And now he models that. And then he speaks to them and he says, a new commandment I'm giving to you. The commandment to love one another as I have loved you. Yeah, the, the old commandment was love others. Now I'm saying as I have loved you. And the Holy Spirit would come later on to give them the capacity to do that. And then he gathers them. And so he does all of that, preparing them to, to be with the meal. Um, and then they, they celebrate the meal. With what we often call the Last Supper. Now, when, when you hear Last Supper, what immediately comes to mind? Painting. The painting. You get a star. <laughs> because that's, <laughs> you understood what I was asking. That's the biggest deal. <laughs> this painting, right? This is the painting that, that you know, I, I, um, I think Da Vinci spent like three years painting this thing. And he got it so wrong. This is what we usually think of when it comes to that. Now, to give a little grace to Da Vinci, he makes the same mistake that we so often make. And that is we read scripture through our eyes instead of through the events that actually happen. And that's a lot of what we've learned in our learning communities with Michael Heiser is, is we're viewing the scriptures through 20th 21st century eyes. And so naturally, that's the way they would eat. Back when Da Vinci painted, that, I mean, we all sit at tables in the same way, but that's not how they ate in that culture. The style of eating in the New Testament was this. They, were, they would sit around a U-shaped table. Well, they wouldn't even sit. They would, they would recline. And so that's what you find in the scripture. They would recline at the table. They, uh, and so there were cushions that were around the table, and the table was about a, a foot off the ground. So um, they, would, they would recline on, on, I think it was the right hand, is that right? And then they would, they, and then they would use the other hand. I think, I think it was the right hand that they used. Don't quote me on that. But they would, they would recline on the cushions, and then they would reach out the right hand for food, and then, then the legs were away from the table. So flip over in your Bible to John chapter 13, beginning with verse 21. So with that in mind, that picture in mind, they're reclining around the table. 
John chapter 13, beginning with verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved, and that was John, because he was the closest friend. You know, Jesus had friends. He was closest to him, was reclining at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus because they were reclining at a table, and the way that for John to talk to Jesus was to lean back and ask Jesus a question. He was leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are to do, do quickly. There are several um, lessons that Jesus is modeling. Several pictures that Jesus is giving to, um, to all of the disciples. Put up that next picture. So they would recline in a U-shaped table. And the first lesson that they, that, so Jesus is hosting. He's the host, but he has shown himself to be servant of all by washing their feet, expressing his love to them. And then when they recline at the table for the meeting or for the, the meal, what we see is Jesus is in the host position. John is in, or, or um, yeah, John is in the, what they call the runner position. And so he would be next to him on, on Jesus' right, and he, the host would turn to that person and say, we need, you know, we need something, help me, you know, give me, give me a hand with this. And so he put John, now notice, the three in Jesus' inner circle were who? Peter, James, John. James is going to be beheaded not long, maybe a couple of years after Jesus is gone. But these two from the inner circle would remain and Jesus models for them, to them, the lesson to them and to the rest of the disciples that you are the inner circle and you are to be the servant of all. And so he puts John in the runner position, a servant position. And he puts Peter in the servant seat. So Notice he's farthest away from Jesus of anyone. And yet he's the one that Jesus says, when, when you are restored, you lead my brothers. You, you take care. You, and he becomes the early leader of the church. And yet Jesus puts him in the servant seat. Do you know who, if there was not a, a servant who was not eating at the table, should have washed everyone else's feet? It should have been Peter. But well, he objected from that, of that. And so Peter is in the servant seat because I think Jesus is trying to teach him a lesson. You need to be the servant of all the brothers. And where's Judas? The right-hand side of Jesus is the runner position. The left hand beside the host is the seat of honor. 
Now, does Jesus know that Judas is going to betray him? And yet he puts him right beside him in the seat of honor. Why in the world would he do that? Because as we said at the very beginning, everything Jesus does is deliberate and intentional out of his love and his purposes to reveal himself, but also to pursue us. I believe it's a last ditch effort to pursue Judas. Saying to him, I'm, I'm giving you the seat of honor because I know what you're going to do. And he reveals it in just a moment when he says, if you look back at the scripture, in uh, yeah, John chapter 13, he says, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, so they looked around the table, not knowing who that was going to be. And then John in verse 23, reclined the table. Peter motions from it. So Peter, can't, he's not going to yell across, hey, Jesus! He's not going to yell across the table. So he motions to John and says, ask him. And so John asks him. And he, then he says to him, it is verse 26, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. What's that? God's talking. <laughs> Not in the way that we think, though. It is he to whom I will give the morsel. And so Jesus is sitting there, puts him in the seat of honor, and then offers it to Judas. Nobody else understands what's going on. But he says to him, if you're going to do it, do it quickly. Jesus is relentlessly pursuing Judas. Jesus relentlessly pursues you. No matter what you've done, no matter how much you're putting your hand up, no matter how much you're resisting, he pursues you. He's pursuing that person that you don't like. He's pursuing the person, the people who have hurt you. He's pursuing the people that you think could never come to know him. Jesus relentlessly, out of his love, incomprehensible love, pursues even those who hurt him. We see it one more time when Judas leads the entourage to arrest Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus' words to him, I think I put them up here. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I, think it's a, I, I don't think it's condemnation. I think he's, give, he's saying one last time, really? Really? You really? Jesus relentlessly pursues What will you do as Jesus relentlessly pursues you? Not just for salvation. He will relentlessly pursue you all of your life. Because he knows the good. He knows how much he wants to work in your life and, and how much joy he wants to put in you and how much abundant life. But we're so upside down that we don't realize it. We don't see it. We don't recognize it. And the only way to... to to say yes is to lay aside our own agenda. I don't know why Judas didn't listen, but he couldn't lay aside his own agenda. And as a result, ends up as a sad, sad part. Number three, the cross. The cross. This is where Jesus 
sacrifices himself. Jesus completes his mission and the, that final week as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was a sacrifice that caused him agony. A sacrifice that caused him agony. Um, it was, it, and, and so the brutality of it, if you've ever watched uh, The Passion of the Christ, the brutality of that is, is displayed. And I think they do a fairly good job of causing us to recognize how much physical pain Jesus must have gone through. So the brutality of the beating was such that oftentimes people would die before they ever got to the cross because the, the uh, whipping, the 39 lashes could kill a person. In fact, in the garden, before Jesus ever gets arrested, he's ble- it, it says he's sweating great drops of blood, which is a medical condition that indicates somebody is already close to death. And scripture tells us the angels came and ministered to him or he would never have made it to the cross. That's the agony that he was experiencing. How could he do that? For the joy that was set before him. Because he wanted to complete the Father's task. And he wanted to bring honor and glory to the Father. He wanted to redeem mankind. And he kept his eye on the, on the, on the end. It was a sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin. The cross is ugly. The cross is so ugly. People don't, you know, in our culture, people wear crosses as jewelry and they don't even, they're not even Christians. It's just a piece of jewelry. And it's become so commonplace that we don't recognize it. The cross was an ugly tool of execution designed to to create torture in the people who were hanging on the cross so that they would die a very slow, agonizing death as as penalty for them, but also as a warning for everyone who would see him. And, and people would see him because they would often ha- have those crosses lining the street leading into the Roman cities. And so even children would see people dying on those crosses. It was an ugly, ugly tool. And so when we sing, oh, the wonderful cross, it's not about the cross. It's about what Jesus did on the cross. It's about what he accomplished on the cross. He transformed it from this this ugly uh, um, tool of torture to this beautiful salvation and rescue. Everything Jesus did and said had a purpose. And so on that day, there are many things that, that he said, things that were done to him, things that were shouted to him. But we find finally in Mark chapter 15, verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he he, he, uh, utters uh, the, the Greek word that says it is finished. What we with 21st century eyes don't recognize is that first century rabbis' way of teaching was often that they would teach men to memorize entire chapters of scripture. 
And as they, and, and once they established that and, and men were the ones that were taught scripture would knew these, would know these huge chunks of scripture, a rabbi would only then have to state the first verse of that chapter, that first verse of that passage and everything following in that passage would immediately come to mind to those who were listening. So the rabbis would say, make a statement. And when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was following that pattern of saying as a rabbi, the first verse of Psalm 22. And immediately those who were literate in the Jewish Old Testament would understand what he was quoting, and then they would recognize everything else that was in that chapter. Psalm 22 is the account of what the Messiah as the sacrifice would do. And so he's stating that, and people would begin to understand. And so I, I think I concluded in, in your outline, the end of Psalm 22 Look at what it says. It, it goes through from verse 1 to verse 26. It talks about what um, the Messiah will do, the, the, the suffering. And then it says in verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't just crying out in pain to the Father, even though he was in, enduring the pain of not just the physical, but the pain of the penalty of sin, the death that sin deserves. He was, it, it, it was enduring the spiritual pain of that. He was, but that's not why he was just crying out. He was crying out to state what he accomplished. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. He's saying, I'm here, I'm on the cross, and God wins. All the prosperous of the earth, shall, of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn that he has done it. Jesus was saying, I have done it. The Father has won. All the Sanhedrin would have recognized that claim, but they didn't understand it. More importantly, all the rebellious Elohim, all the rebellious forces of, of evil would go, Oh no, this is not what we had expected. Jesus was proclaiming he was a victor. Jesus is saying to his followers, and, and that, remember that, that scripture where it says his disciples didn't understand these things until later? They didn't get it then, but they knew it later because he wanted them to know that he is winning. God, it looks bleak now, but God wins in the end. It's about victory. It ends in hope, not despair. His death would be followed by victorious resurrection. His followers were overwhelmed with the situation. And I think the grief prevented them from actually hearing what Jesus was saying. So they didn't know. 
And they were, they were in sorrow and they were grieving. How could it end this way? But ultimately, victory would come. On the other side of the pain, on the other side of the sorrow. Because sacrifice, this, it was a sacrifice, the cross was a sacrifice that anticipated resurrection and victory. It wasn't the end. No matter how many times Jesus tried to tell them, they couldn't get it. And I wonder, as we look at the question, what will we do? What will you do? I wonder how often when we look at our lives and, it, and we go through the bleakness, we go through the pain, we go through the sorrow, that we forget that Jesus has proclaimed victory. No matter how painful it is, Jesus still is a victor. No matter how much we betray him. So later we find uh, Peter has betrayed him and he, and he thinks all is lost. But no matter how deeply we betray him, Jesus still forgives and gives victory. No matter how, much, how bleak it looks now, how hard it looks, no matter how lost we look, Everybody looked at the apostle, or at, at Saul, who would become the apostle Paul, and they, they looked at him and goes, this is a lost case. How, can, how in the world could he have? And then on the Damascus Road, Jesus jumps in and he transforms it. Nobody is past transformation. When you, so what will you do? When you go through those bleak times, when you go through those painful times, when you, when you see no, no way that God could turn this around, is God big enough to still believe in? He is. And that's one of the messages that we need to see when we look at the cross. It was awful. But Jesus wins. It took his sacrifice. It took his pain. So what could be too much for him to ask of us? Nothing. If he's done all of that for us, what could be too much to ask? And so that's why I challenge when, when we come to weeks of prayer with fasting, it's something, oh, I can never give up food for that. Jesus gave up his life. But that's also why I emphasize so strongly, ask him how he wants you to fast. Because there's no one right way. There's no one, it's not me to tell you, it's what he wants to do. The cross as Jesus died was his assignment. Peter's assignment came later. John's assignment came later. Peter died hanging upside down, according to tradition. John ended up on the island of Patmos as an exile, probably 90 years old. And God, and Jesus shows up again, and through him writes the book of Revelation. Two different assignments. What is God's assignment for you this week? What does he, how does he want you to fast? How does he want you to lean into him? What might he want you to pray about? Who, who in your life might he be ready to really zero in on? But prayer, um, it, it, prayer, it, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it, it just resources the, uh, the, the work of God. So what will you do? It must have been sobering for Jesus to hold the elements of the Passover meal. Knowing that he was going to be the lamb that was sacrificed. It must have been very sobering for him to recognize that 
as he held the bread and he held the cup, it would mysteriously, supernaturally become the elements that would lead us back to him every time we celebrate communion. And as we've learned through Michael Heiser, that every time we celebrate communion, it's actually spiritual warfare because it's proclaiming again in the heavenlies, in the, in the unseen, to the forces of rebellion, Jesus beat you. And someday he's coming back to destroy you. So when I think of the Last Supper, my mind often goes back to how Jesus established that um, as a remembrance. But uh, more recently, it, God has been emphasizing to me that this, the, the celebration of communion isn't just looking back. It's also recommitting ourselves and looking forward. And, and so the, the, the words in the, the scripture tell us, as often as you do that, remember the Lord as often as you do this until he comes again, until he returns. It's looking forward. So I'm going to ask you to take your elements. And think about that question once again, what will you do? As we think about the sacrifice of Jesus, we emphasize a lot about surrendering, listening, and obeying. We emphasize a lot about um, following him in obedience to him, no matter what. What will you do when the next time Jesus, the Holy Spirit, says something to you, it's something that feels too big. When you say, okay, I don't understand it, I don't get it, I don't see how I can do it. But Lord, I'll take a step and you give me the ability to do it. And it's different for each one of us. Because the hard things that we resist have a lot to do with our experiences and personality. And but he challenges us to do hard things, not because he is mean, but because he loves us. He wants to develop us. He wants us to become more like him. And he wants to use us in those hard situations because it's not just about us. The cross was not about Jesus only. It was about what would happen as a result. So what will you do? As you celebrate communion this time, I would invite you to make it about saying, Lord, I remember and I'm so grateful. And I commit now to you. If there's anything in my way, if there's anything that I'm holding on to, tell me and I will surrender it. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
After the meal, he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant that's shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we commit to you. But we confess that we are still way more upside down than we realize. And so we ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit that lives within us, give us the ability to surrender and listen and obey. As we go through this week, Lord, would you help us, empower us, strengthen us to carve out time with you where you can have access to us. And then bring our remembrance back to that last week. To give us greater awe of who you are. Deeper appreciation for all that you've done. And a deeper surrender. That we will walk in step with you, filled with your spirit. Lord, in these moments, would you identify those places in our lives where we still need to surrender? Lord, I pray that you would draw people to yourself that you want to heal physically, emotionally, relationally as we surrender. Lord, I pray that you would give us a, a, a bigger love for people that we're struggling to love. I, I pray that you would identify anything in our, our church, the way that we're doing or, or not doing. I pray that you would be with the Acts 13 team and the leadership team and the governance board, that you would guide us to be on mission for you as you desire, that you would give us your mind deeper than we've ever had it before. Pray that you would have your way. And in doing so, that we would experience a, a, a stronger satisfaction in abundant living than we've ever had before. That people would see you in us without us even trying. Because we just shine and, and we just flavor every place we go. I pray that you would knock off the rough edges and, and you would make us um, the winsome, appealing kind of people that you were when you lived on earth. Make us strong warriors for you. Have your way, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.